You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose. And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Coming up next on the Untold Stories of Broadway podcast, we have a very exciting guest, Rebecca Naomi Jones, current star of Oklahoma. We're going to be talking about the St. James Theater and American Idiot. She's an incredible actress whose other credits are some of my favorite shows, uh, Significant Other, Fortress of Solitude, Passing Stray, and so many shows to talk about. We're excited to have her coming up now. This is Jennifer Ashley Tepper with the Untold Stories of Broadway podcast. And today my guest is the amazing Rebecca Naomi Jones. Hi. I am so happy to talk to you about theaters today. Me too. I'm really happy we finally made this happen. Yeah. Um, So I'm super excited to talk about the St. James, where, of course, you did American Idiot, which was amazing. I saw it, 2010, 2011. Um, But first, how are things going at your show? How's Oklahoma? Things are going well. Uh, It's, you know, it's a funny time, um, like six months in to a run um, on Broadway particularly where everyone is so intensely tired but you're still so devoted and you love it so much but um, we're just at that place where it's like you have to be really careful because if you get a little too comfortable, somebody's going to forget a line. You're going to go to the white room, which is what I like to call that <laughs> that moment where you're like, what am I doing here? Why am I, what am I speaking about? Why? That's especially relevant in your production of Oklahoma. It's very white. <laughs> it <duh>. is. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah, the lights are on, so it feels extra vulnerable. And it's funny because I, um, I ran into uh, Amber Gray the other day on the street and she said that over at her theater at Hades Town, they're going through the same thing right mm-hmm. now where everybody's sort of feeling a little bit like, uh, are we still all here? Or do we know what we're doing? Yeah, <laughs> so, the six-month struggle bus. That's yeah, a real thing. It's a real thing. But, um, you know, it's still it's still, it's still working. Yeah, the, the production's incredible. If anyone listening hasn't seen it, go to Circle in the Square right away. Go it's very it. special. It's, it's definitely um, some of the most satisfying work I've ever done. Cool. Um, one of the things I'm most excited about today is we're going to get to talk a little bit about the original Oklahoma, which is one of the most legendary shows that played the St. James. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so before we jump into like St. James history, uh, I'm so curious, what was the first show that you saw at the St. James? I think the first thing I saw was, uh, that production of forum that happened there. Um, I remember seeing it with my mom. There was a period of time where we were, um, going to see a lot of theater, like anything that we saw on TDF (laughs) and, um, I, I, yeah, I definitely feel like we saw some really funny 
a famous person in yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was uh, such an interesting thing because it was like they captured the old school vaudevilleness of it. Like yes. it was Nathan Lane and then Whoopi and then David Allen Greer yes. and like personalities. And, absolutely. Yeah. And I think we might have seen David Allen Greer. That's oh, cool. absolutely right, which was like a special treat for my mom and I because we used to love um, – uh, living color in living color. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you know when I interviewed Jordan Roth, he talked about he discovered a ticket stub for seeing that production um, when he was really young as well. Oh my gosh! Um, and he didn't realize until he found the ticket stub that he had seen the first preview. And so oh. now, like you know, he runs Drew Jamson and he sits upstairs in his office, but he goes and sits in that seat that he sat <gasps> in when he was little and saw that for him. Oh so. come on! It's like that's adorable. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> and meanwhile, Jordan Roth. Yes. Nailing the Lukes these days. Nailing the Lukes. <laughs> nailing the theater and the Lukes. <laughs> That's right. Um, all St. James related. One of the coolest things about the St. James to me is that the offices are right there, the Drew Jamson offices. So it's kind of like, I don't know what your experience was in American Idiot. Did you ever interact with people that were in the Drew Jamson office? Yeah, occasionally. I mean, it, would, it didn't happen very often, but there was a funny little um, occasional thing that happened with elevators. Yes. Sometimes <laughs> where it was like, wait, what? Oh, yeah. There's Hi, office guys. people here. Yeah. Yeah. I know that, um, you know, because the theater's attached to the offices on Wednesday matinees, there's sometimes, like, little moments where someone will just, like, run by yeah. in their costume. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's also, there's that vestibule that's, like, to the left of the St. James where sometimes um, performers are. You're, like, I remember walking by and seeing a bunch of people in Grinch just, like, in yeah. the vestibule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The St. James. I um, know. I love that theater. <laughs> yeah. So, tell me, what was it like, like, moving in an American Idiot? Do you remember your first impressions of the theater? Uh, yeah. Well, first First of all, I will say um, something that I hold on to so often is how well we were taken care of by our company management and our producers at that theater because I remember before we even moved in, we were given an, an allowance for our dressing room decorations and so everybody got to personalize their dressing rooms and we got to choose paint color and furniture and it, that just made it feel so exciting, especially because we were doing a show that was so specific and so you know, full of angst. <laughs> and, um, and it was nice to have your dressing room feel like whatever you wanted it to feel like, be it, um, in line with what the show was for you in line with your character or, or just something else that felt like you. And along with that, um, the theater felt like it really welcomed us, which is really special because the St. James is so grand and beautiful. I mean, especially now, but, um, it, it just felt like, um, like, you know, they painted the walls of the theater. It was all red and sort of graffitied. And um, and I remember really, really vividly the, um, the crew office, which was run by a bunch of um, family members, this one family and then some other guys. And um, a couple of them were named Tim, Timmy. You know, it was like <laughs> Tim was the dad and then one of the sons was named Timmy. And so, you know, there was a character in American Idiot named St. Jimmy. And so they changed that office to being the St. Timmy <laughs> office and they painted it and it, it was, they opened it up to us. So it wasn't just like the crew's place. It was our place also to hang out sort of right, right off stage left if, you know, if we had to go on for a scene but had a little bit of a second. And um, it was very welcoming. It was a really welcoming, generous place to work. I love hearing about the stagehands and like the stagehand families that are at the theaters. Oh, and I yeah. remember hearing about like Timmy and about all of that. And then I was so excited to learn interviewing people about like Barnum and some shows earlier that he had been there since the 80s. Like Which they, is insane. Since he was a teenager. Because yeah. he really 
not an old guy. <laughs> right. But it, like, it makes them feel like homes, like yeah, the theaters. that's yeah. right. That's right. Um, so rewinding a lot, um, the St. James was built in 1927, fun fact, um, and it was built by this uh, producer named Abraham Erlanger, who was known for being like a pretty ruthless producer businessman. Mm. Um, and pretty soon the theater was, you know, taken over by the Schuberts and then by Ju Jamson later on. But the first show at the theater um, is interesting because there's actually, I don't know if you remember, there's um, a giant, like, poster in the lower lobby near the women's room. Yes. Um, it was this show written by uh, George M. Cohan called The Mary Malones that starred George M. Cohan. And every time I go there, there's still this like, it's not a poster. It's like a giant um, front of house piece that I'm like, yes. how is the one front of house piece on display at the St. James, the oldest show? Like, that's so yes. cool that they have that. Yes. I remember that. It's, it's almost like a, it looks almost like a crown molding, right? That's, that's like yeah, stale, yeah, yeah, still yeah. there. That's like filled with this old, as you said, front yeah. of house piece. Yeah. There's something so special about it's that really when you cool. walk by. It's like, wait, what is this? What is this? So yeah. if you're going to see Frozen kids, like check out the George M. Cohan thing yeah. in the lower lobby. Yeah. Um, but one thing that I thought was interesting was George M. Cohan wasn't originally supposed to star in it. And whoever the leading actor was did a bunch of backflips on stage when they were <laughs> rehearsing, died, and then nope. George M. Cohan replaced him. So no. very crazy story about 1927 <gasps> Mary Malone's. Um, I know, sad story. But George M. Cohan hadn't starred in a musical for a while. And then the last musical he did on Broadway was also at the St. James. So some George M. Cohan history. All right. <laughs> I'm saluting like that's something he would have done, but you can't see me. Um, well, I can, and she saluted. I saluted. Um, so as far as like backstage, and that's so cool that the, like, you guys like take over the dressing rooms, where was your dressing room and what was the backstage like as far as who was where? Um, my dressing room was, I guess, the first room, I guess the second floor. So the, so the, the first floor up from the, from the lower level, from the main level. Um, so I guess that would be, be considered the second floor. Um, on the bottom floor, we had Russ, who was our usual uh, door, door person, who my mother adored. But she always called Russell. <laughs> Very formal. <laughs> um, yeah. And then um, I believe, yes, I believe um, uh, Michael Esper was right there. And his, his dressing room was right there. And actually, when I visited Frozen, it was really funny to go backstage and see people in, you know, different places. I was like, oh, this is really bizarre. But anyway, yeah, Esper was there. And I believe um, Stark Sands was also on that floor. And then up sort of on the stage level, a little bit up from the stage level, there's another dressing room. And that's mm -hmm. where um, uh, Tony Vincent was. And down in the basement was where Johnny Gallagher was. So on the second floor, I had mine. And then uh, right down the hall from me was where the rest of the ladies were. So it was Alicia, Libby, Leslie, uh, Lauren Latero. And I believe Aspen Vincent was in there as well. And then up on this on the floor above us was um, Mary Faber and Christina Saju. I cannot believe how well you remember this. It's I know. amazing. Well, it was a really impactful time. Yeah, it was as really... you're naming all these people, I'm like, you guys are still really close. Yeah. Like, that's such a close group. But were you friends with those people before? Was it like a show bonding moment? I, it was a show bonding moment, really and truly. I don't think I knew anyone beforehand. I think Mary Faber and I had done a reading gosh, oh my gosh, I think we had done a reading with Tom Kitt <laughs> randomly a years before, but we really didn't know each other. And um, and same with Tom Kitt. I mean, we we hadn't known each other except for that reading. So that, that show really, really bonded us, though. I think it, because it was such hard work, it felt um, physically so demanding that I think that forces you to feel like a team. And, and also because of Stephen Hoggett's choreography um, and, and the way he ran a rehearsal room um, and how important he found it to be that we 
got together before the show to warm up, mm-hmm. um, which he does apparently with all of his shows. That I think that really bonds a cast. Yeah. So. I feel like the two things I hear about that are the most bonding are if there's like a green room or a St. Timmy's like gathering spot and the pre-show. Like if yeah. you get to connect with people when you're not on stage, that makes a big difference. It's so important because yeah. especially, I mean, as we were saying, like se- several months into a show, mm-hmm. it just gets harder and harder no matter how much you love it, no matter how much you respect it, no matter how much you're someone who refuses to phone it in, mm-hmm. it's hard. It's really hard work to do day after day after day. Mm-hmm. And so if you can hold on to the fact that you're not alone and that you're mm-hmm. with other people who are, you know, <laughs> managing the <laughs> fatigue yeah. along with you, it, it really helps. Yeah. Um, well, I love knowing where everyone was on American Idiot because one of my favorite things to kind of learn about the theaters is however much I can find out about whose dressing room was whose. And yeah. sometimes people, like, you know, sign underneath. But when you're digging back, um, the St. James is actually the one that I was able to find out like a lot about who it was where during some mm. of the legendary shows. Um, so, and you know, I feel like there's the stage right, like more isolated star-ish dressing room. And then there's the stage left, stage level one. Yes. So um, it was like, you know, Nathan Lane had stage right, Matthew Broderick had stage left, and uh. the producers. And then I was able, even able to find Find out that Gertrude Lawrence had stage right and Yul Brynner had stage uh, left on the King and I. Wow. So it's like getting to like dig back, and then it just makes you, I think, really realize like there are so many people that have played the St. James, like yeah. because it's such a legendary, like appreciated musical house. That one of the other things I heard about it over and over was how great the sound is. Um, yeah, and American Idiot, of course, I feel like sound was so important because um, one thing that was so awesome about the show was it sounded like Green Day, like a rock concert, but it was so important to hear the lyrics, and you could. Yeah, um, and oh. that's something going back that you know, producers always want the St. James because the lyrics like are clear. Of course you were in the show, so you probably didn't see it to note, but the the sound is awesome. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's so important. And I remember hearing that, that it was, that the sound was really good. And it is such a tricky thing, especially with a rock musical to find the right balance so people can still get the story and hear the lyrics and still feel, feel the music. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Um, one of the other cool pieces of St. James history that I love is um, there's this musical called Fine and Dandy, mm-hmm. which had music by Kay Swift and it was actually the first hit Broadway musical uh, composed by a woman um, she was like incredible and if you're listening to this kids go look her up Kay Swift um, she was uh, you know frequent collaborators and best friends with George Gershwin which often is how people know about her she's kind of a footnote she did a lot of the um, you know vocal and music arranging on Porgy and Bess and you what? know she was amazing oh, but Fine and Dandy was like a huge hit in 1930 and you know she became the first female composer of a Broadway hit musical so wow. yay St. James I'm embarrassed I didn't know that about her it's not Porgy Por- Por- and Bess. Uh, yeah, she was like his closest musical confidant in that wow. way. So she um, did a lot of work on his work, which is why we probably don't have more original musicals from her. But the St. James um, did have her big hit show, which is cool. So cool. 
Um, I'm going to, oh gosh, where is it? Uh-oh. No, I found it. It's fine. Um, <laughs> I'm going to make you read a story that I'm really excited to have you read. Oh, um, and it is a story from my book uh, that was told to me by George S. Irving. And that's all I'm going to tell you. All right. Great. The title will give something away. <laughs> <laughs> 1943. Everything's going my way. George S. Irving, actor. I never saw a Broadway show until I was in one. You needed a few bucks to get into a theater, and I didn't have any money. The first Broadway show I was in was the original production of Oklahoma in 1943. During the summer of 1942, I had a job at the St. Louis Muni Opera, singing in the chorus and doing small parts in the shows. For the last show of the season, at the end of August, we did Showboat and Norma Terrace, Broadway's original Magnolia, starred. Oscar Hammerstein came out to St. Louis to see the production. One day, he was standing at the front of the audience section of the huge amphitheater, watching, when the young man singing the role of Joe, the old man river part, became sick with laryngitis. He was out of the show, and another actor, John Tyers, replaced him. I replaced John Tyers. Oscar took that in during rehearsal, and I got to know him a little bit that day as he yelled back and forth from the house to the stage. Later that winter, I heard that the Theater Guild was going to do a musical based on Green Grow the Lilacs, a play by Lynn Riggs. So I wrote Oscar a letter reminding him who I was and telling him that I would love a chance to audition for a job in the chorus. He got me an appointment, and I came in and got the job. I'm originally from Springfield, Massachusetts. Oklahoma played out of town in both New Haven at the Schubert and in Boston at the Colonial. It was an expensive move, but there was money in those days to do that kind of thing. I was a kid in the chorus, so I didn't know much about the troubles the show was having. I did know that there was a Mary Martin vehicle in Boston at the same time. It was called Dancing in the Streets, and it was highly touted. People didn't have a lot of hope for our show because there were no bare-legged girls. But that show ended up being a big flop, and ours was a big hit. When I moved into the St. James, I was amazed. I had never seen a Broadway theater before. Since I was always fond of ballet, I would watch Agnes DeMille's dance rehearsals avidly. I was in the background of some of the dances, but I really paid attention to what the dancers were doing. My roommate, John Baum, was in the show, too, and we were pals with Diana Adams and Bambi Lynn, our castmates. We'd all go to lunch together. We made history with Oklahoma. Then a week after Oklahoma opened on Broadway, I received my draft notice. They gave me three weeks to report for duty. I had to give my notice at the show, and they hired another kid to replace me. Then, at the end of the three weeks, the draft board said, we're full up, and we don't need you. There I was, without a job. I heard that up the street, they were looking for a chorus boy at Lady in the Dark. I auditioned for Morris Abravanel, the music director, and Moss Hart, who was directing and had written the book. And I got the job. As I started rehearsing, they built beautiful new costumes for me. It was a wonderful show, and Gertie Lawrence was tremendous in it. Then, on my first night in the show, I got a letter from the draft board saying they needed me to report. <laughs> I responded, please, I cannot do that to these people who just hired me. Give me a few weeks. They relented and let me stay in the show for a month. A suitable replacement was found, and then I was really and truly in the Army. Crazy. Crazy. <laughs> I know. It just blows my mind to be like, oh, someone is talking about World War II in Oklahoma, and yeah. I just 
it's amazing. He had an amazing career. Yeah. It's also amazing that he's just like, well, I'll just uh, go up the street and audition for this one. And then I got that job too. Yeah. Uh, and then I had to go back to the army. And yeah. It's just, what a, what a funny, weird story. I know. I know. And so like, you know, thinking about the Muni having existed back then, of yeah. course, because it's, you know, legendary and that old. And so, so is the St. James. And yeah. these things that we think of as being like ours have been around. You know? yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. That's a good reminder. It's a good reminder that everything we're doing at all time is really not ours. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, the legacy and like the continuity of those things. That's right. Um, yeah. So one cool thing, you know, obviously the St. James has a long history of like Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals. Mm -hmm. So Oklahoma, but also King and I and Flower Drum Song. Um, and just, you know, the musical comedies that have been there too. Like right. it's such a great house. It's a large house, but it, it feels like intimate. Yes. Um, yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah. I did see Frozen there and I, and I was so surprised even a Disney show, which is massive and sparkly, still felt intimate. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Um, do you have uh, any memories, like favorite memories from the American Idiot run as far as like what, I mean, that performance, like how did you sustain that for as long? Like it was such an incredible and, uh, you know, huge performance. Yeah. It was, I mean, I have so many um, incredible memories from that time. Um, but I was just speaking to Damon Dono and uh, Jimmy Davis at the theater the other day about, uh, I mean, they, Damon was like, was American Idiot this hard? And I said, yeah, I mean, it's, it was almost as hard. It was, I was younger. And also that show was 90 minutes long with no intermission. Right, Oklahoma right. is three hours long with an intermission. Um, plus the lights are on and we feel the audience and every little move and every little phone that goes off and all, every oh whisper. It's, that's a nightmare, but um, that's a whole other story. Um, oh, I bet. But I, but they were asking about it and I said, well, you know, what was, what was so incredible about that show and how it could sort of you know, catapult you out of the feeling of, of I can't do this tonight mm -hmm. is that that guitar would start at the beginning and it just would propel you onto the stage. Literally, if you were the, if you were the women, I mean, we, we like sort of exploded onto the stage in the first act, in the first song. And it, it just felt like it never stopped after mm -hmm. that for the 90 minutes. So you sort of were up on the journey once you were there and riding the wave, mm -hmm. um, which was so incredible. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it was. I have so many incredible memories. I mean, I had I had a brief moment backstage um, uh, during. Um, I guess it must have been Boulevard Boulevard of Broken Dreams, and uh, the sort of the like break between that song and whatever came after it. It might have been St. Jimmy, actually. And I remember watching my castmates, the people who were in the ensemble, running, like racing backstage to do quick changes. Because that's <laughs> so much of that show is like people are on stage and then people are running off stage, throwing clothes off. I mean, there were so many little um, – we had these <laughs> – we had these like um, – what are those things called? Like co costume racks, yeah. but basically, like the whole backstage, which is the, the the we had a large backstage area, and the um, there were like basically makeshift costume racks for every member of the ensemble. Wow! And so everybody had these hooks, and they were like you know, the hooks were sort of like in order of the costume changes and because there were so many right backstage um, quick changes. And so the ensemble, I mean, it's going to sound a little bit crass of me to say, but you could just watch people just like strip <laughs> down naked and then just like throw on entirely new outfits in yeah. no time. And, but it was incredible. It's just because people are still singing. They're still singing yeah. their harmonies, racing together <laughs> and then, you know, disrobing and then racing back on and singing something else and, and sort of walking on at a different speed. And I mean, it, 
it, it was just um, one of those things that I just was so constantly impressed and amazed by the people I was working with. And, um, you know, similarly to the situation I'm in now, just very much in love with everyone that I get to do this with every day. And um, and I still feel that way about all of those people. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I loved and that always struck me about American Idiot was I feel like in the musical theater, like I can never say this word, over, how do you say it? Oh, right, I think, yeah. I say that badly, but in, you get what I'm saying. Yeah, you have a lot of skills. Thank so you. Okay. <laughs> um, in musical theater in general, there are so many angry young man songs and we don't get a lot of angry young woman songs. Correct. And listen to the American Idiot cast recording because there's just these hugely gratifying moments of like angry young woman. Yeah. And it's so fantastic. It's so true. They even kept, um, kept a little line that I added in which is in the middle of letter bomb one day I just screamed at John wake up and that <laughs> became part of the script oh my god I love that have you ever seen like a, a middle school high school camp production you know have you seen um, I have not seen a middle school or high school production <laughs> but I've seen a college production okay. that Leslie McDonald directed oh, cool. at um pace downtown and it was incredible yeah it was a really really great production it it was it must have been only a couple of years after we closed it was uh, it was a couple of years ago now but um but it was really great and it was great to see her version of it and it was great to sort of see um how I could make sense of it watching it because it is all sung through um except for those tiny little brief monologues that the Johnny character says and um you know so it can be a little bit um you know, it's like a painting. It's like you have to sort of figure out what it means for yourself. So, um, but I, I loved it so much. That's so cool yeah. to get to see someone like scream, wake up. And yeah. that was, you. yeah, it's pretty wild. But I also have all the time at the stage door, I have women say, I, I just played what's her name in my high school's production or my college production. Cool. This afternoon I had somebody say, I was in, just in Passing Strange. Oh, amazing. Yeah, it's very, I love it's very that. Sweet. So it's cool. very sweet when that happens. Thank you so much for tuning in to part one of the Untold Stories of Broadway podcast with this week's guest, Rebecca Naomi Jones. Stay tuned for part two of Rebecca Naomi Jones' exciting interview. Thank you to our producer, Dory Berenstein, our editor, Alan Seals, my publishers of the Untold Stories of Broadway, Brisa Trincaro and Roberta Pereira, Zach Zadek for that theme music. And thank you to all of you for listening to the podcast. You can buy the Untold Stories in book version on Amazon.com. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.